From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, December 27th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Today, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid says we're headed for the fiscal cliff. If you want to know what that might be like, just look at Britain. Britain deliberately went over its own self-created cliff uh, with its eyes open. It actually wanted to do that. And we go in search of the perfect Cuban sandwich. Down here in Little Havana and kind of the west side of Miami, it's all Cubano. And then I've also found one Jubano, which is a, a Cuban sandwich made with pastrami. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com, and by Focus Features, presenting the new film Promised Land, starring Matt Damon and John Krasinski, from the director of Goodwill Hunting, in select theaters tomorrow. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. You've heard a lot of talk about a fiscal cliff. Well, by all accounts, we're about to go over it. President Obama cut his Hawaiian holiday short to try to get a deal on the looming fiscal crisis. But it's looking extremely unlikely that Republicans and Democrats can agree on a plan by the end of the year. So what's that going to mean? Well, Britain went over its own fiscal cliff a couple of years ago. Since then, it's imposed a series of painful budget cuts. And if the present state of the British economy is any indication, it could be a tough road ahead for Americans, too. Edward Luce is the chief U.S. commentator and columnist for the Financial Times. He is now in London. Edward, is this a fair comparison? Can we look to Britain's own experience with the fiscal cliff as a kind of harbinger of uh, what could happen with the U.S. economy? Politically, it's not a fair comparison because Britain deliberately went over its own self-created cliff uh, with its eyes open. It it actually wanted to do that. The new conservative government, uh, coalition government that was elected in 2010, took the view that Britain uh, was suffering for its sins. And the sins were namely too much spending and too high debt. And so it, as you said in the introduction, it instituted an austerity program which is going to continue till 2018. The difference with the U.S. were it to go over the fiscal cliff next week is that this is a multi-year program in Britain. And what we're looking at in the U.S. is a a one-year sequester to the tune of $500 billion rather than a a rolling um, six, seven-year program. Does that mean sharper pain in a shorter period of time? It does. I mean, if the U.S. were to remain off the cliff for the whole year, you'd get a $500 billion withdrawal from the U.S. economy. If it went over the cliff for one or two weeks, then you'd only get a fraction of that. Because remember, this is an annual spending cuts and tax increase that the sequester would bring in. What are some of the, the other differences between what happened in Britain and what you see happening right now in the U.S.? Well, the U.S. had a, a big stimulus in 2009. It's had a very aggressive action by the Federal Reserve since then to inject demand into the economy. But on the fiscal side, it's really reached a a dead end, an impasse in America. Um, You're no longer in a a fiscal stimulus phase, but you're not really in an austerity one. You're kind of in neutral. 
The US is growing 1.5 to 2% a year. Britain is zero growth. So it's at the other end of the spectrum. And it might well go into a third dip, a triple dip recession in 2013. Um, I guess, you know, the key question with America is not whether it goes over the cliff, because I think the probability is that it will. But how long? it stays over the cliff. That that seems to be the real question. And what's the international interest in that? What would be the knock-on effect? Well, the world economy has been um, uh, really bumping along. China's slowed down considerably. Europe's not adding anything to growth. India's slowed. So America, to the extent it is growing, is sort of half leading whatever global growth we're having. If we saw America go over the cliff and stay over the cliff, beyond President Obama's inauguration on January the 21st, I think it would really spook the markets. I think that we'd be looking at great fear of of a a sharp global downturn in 2013. So the length is important, you're saying? The length is very important. And do bear in mind that we've also got coming up very soon the sovereign debt ceiling in the United States. So I don't know how we mix those metaphors, cliffs and ceilings. But that's also a um, a potentially very unnerving moment for the markets, because if John Boehner can't get his Republican caucus behind him to strike some kind of a deal for the debt ceiling, there is a real possibility that we revisit August 2011, but that on this occasion it goes the wrong way and America, at least temporarily, doesn't honor its debts. And that would be an order of magnitude more serious than the fiscal cliff. Edward Luce, the chief U.S. commentator and columnist for the Financial Times, speaking to us from London. Thanks. Thank you. So what do Brits who are less steeped in economics have to say about America at the fiscal brink? Reporter Christopher Wirth visited his local pub to get a sampling of views. The Barley Mow pub sits just outside London's usually busy financial district. In the period between Christmas and the New Year, just a handful of drinkers sit around the bar. But lucky for me, everyone here has at least heard of the fiscal cliff, and they're willing to give me their best impression of what going over it might sound like. It's a group effort. It's a group effort. Group effort. Come on. Mark Stanton says that thud is the sound of the U.S. hitting the bottom. And even though he lives in a country thousands of miles away from Washington, he's worried about the global fallout if lawmakers can't strike a deal. They need to look beyond their own shores and see what's best for the world, and they don't seem to be able to do that. Sitting in a pub in London, what, what, kind, of, what kind of ripple effect would you expect on January 1st if the U.S. goes over a fiscal cliff? What's the thing? Is it... Uh, uh, if America sneezes, the, the rest of the world catches a cold. So, um, yeah, it's going to have a massive effect on growth around the world. Tim Kent isn't so concerned, even though the deadline is just a few days away. In this country, we say a week's a long time in politics. Three days is more than enough time. <laughs> <laughs> the UK knows something about spending cuts, right? I mean, what would be your advice to a country that looks like it's going over a cliff of spending cuts? Well, I don't think we know enough about spending cuts and, you know, perhaps this, this, this fiscal cliff, which we haven't necessarily seen in our country, is a good way of forcing that issue. At another table, Subban Uden says he doesn't know too much about the fiscal cliff, but... It seems like something that could be really solved really easily and logically, but it seems like people are using it 
as a political football, you know. Um, so I think it's really bad. I think because of the nature of what it is, it'll probably be sorted out, you know, before the U.S. economy falls off a cliff. Well, I hope so, anyway. What impression does it give you of the United States, the fact that, as you say, it's being used in this way? You know, if it was in the U.K., I think it'd be in a similar situation. I think that's just politics, really. Uden says it would be ridiculous if U.S. politicians didn't strike a deal. In fact, he says there are big problems in the world, and this isn't one of them. For The World, I'm Christopher Wirth, London. In Egypt, the revolution opened up the country's media. Cartoonists there can now portray and satirize the country's leaders. Egypt even has its own popular take on The Daily Show. But there are growing fears that hard-earned freedom of expression is getting squeezed. The world's Carol Hills is with me now. Carol, what's going on there? Well, I follow cartoons, as you know, and I saw a few days ago that a cartoonist who I've actually met and done a profile of, Doa Aladl, she's a woman, which is significant because there aren't a lot of women cartoonists anywhere, let alone in the Middle East, and she has been sued strangely by an NGO, an Egyptian NGO. non-governmental organization. Yes, by an Egyptian non-governmental organization that's supposed to protect freedom of expression. And this group is suing her over a cartoon that shows Adam and Eve. They've been cast out of Eden. And an Egyptian man who's now an angel says, if you had voted yes on the referendum for the new constitution, you'd never have been cast out of paradise. So what were they objecting to? And they say they're objecting to the depiction of the holy figures of Adam and Eve. The holy figures? Yes. Which they're they're not. They're, they're, or they're biblical figures, that they're figures in religion, and that according to Islam, no biblical figures or holy figures of any religion should be depicted. So it's a strange lawsuit, and lots of cartoonists have come to her defense. But she's not the only one who's being squeezed. Who else is? Well, there's a sort of John Stewart of Egypt. We've had him on the program. Yes, his name is Bassam Youssef, and he has had this really popular show that's kind of like John Stewart, started out in his like closet, and now he has a studio. And he's gotten in trouble, and a formal complaint has been issued against him for certain depictions and certain jokes or certain send-ups he's done of the government. The, the consistent piece in all of this is criticism of Mohamed Morsi and the, criticism the of president. the current president. But what about the current constitution, the new constitution uh, in Egypt, which specifically calls for a free press? It does, but it also has language that says under certain circumstances, so-called sort of exaggerated or extremist kind of depictions can be considered blasphemous. So it's a bit vague. And in the same way, it's vague about women, because the Constitution, while it says all citizens are created equal, it says there are no specific, there are no equal rights for women. So it's, again, it it leaves open an opportunity for silencing critics and for putting pressure on journalists and bloggers. Carol, I know earlier in the day you spoke with Shahira Amin. She's a a former TV journalist for Nile TV, uh, state-run TV. She resigned uh, a couple of years ago because she said she was tired of being censored. She now writes a column, and she told you that basically this is back to the bad old days under Hosni Mubarak. Yes, and interestingly, she resigned famously right during the revolution over her channel's coverage of the revolution in progress in Tahrir Square and the fact that the only protests being shown on TV were uh, pro-Mubarak. But right now she's saying that it's it's eerily similar yet different. She said in the Mubarak years there was self-censorship, and now there's this kind of active 
pressure from Islamists and from Muslim Brotherhood uh, allies and directly from the government on satirists, cartoonists, journalists, bloggers. So she feels like it's a step back. It's, it's, and, it's, and it's contradicting what the new Egypt is all about. Okay. The world's Carol Hills. Thank you, Carol. We've got a web component to this as well. What do we have on the web? We certainly do. We have the cartoon by Doa Aladl that prompted a lawsuit. We have articles about the gradual silencing of critics. That's the name of the column by Shahira Amin. And we have links to some of the other journalists and bloggers who are getting pressure put on them to stop what they're doing. Okay. All at theworld.org. Thanks again. You're welcome. Coming up tomorrow on The World, a British minister who held services for goths. There's a lot of black, a lot of candles, but the night that I went to a service, there was also prayer and the music of Leonard Cohen. Our story coming up tomorrow on The World. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to health care through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report online at MedtronicFoundation.org. And by Focus Features, presenting the new film Promised Land, starring Matt Damon and John Krasinski, from the director of Goodwill Hunting, in select theaters tomorrow. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. When immigrants move into a community, they change the flavor of the neighborhood. And when the next wave of newcomers arrives, the culture shifts again. That's what's happening in Columbia, Missouri. And some entrepreneurs are doing the math and seeing opportunity. The city's oldest Asian grocery store is now reinventing itself to cater to the needs of its new customers from East Africa. Anna Boyko Wyrock has the story. A worker slaps the price on hefty tubs of kimchi at Chong's Oriental Market in downtown Columbia, Missouri. A food shipment is just in from Chicago, about seven hours away. The store's owner, Taewoon Sin, rings up a customer and thanks her in Korean. His parents migrated from Korea to Chicago and finally to Columbia in 1990. There was an opportunity here. Somebody wanted to sell their shop, and this was the only Asian market in Columbia at the time. So they decided, hey, it actually might be a good move, you know. The store had always specialized in Korean and Japanese food. Thank you, sir. Good day. But today, many shoppers here aren't Asian. In the span of an hour, customers from Ghana, Kenya, and the Congo buy groceries here. Over the past decade, the number of Africans in the small city of Colombia has grown to around 1,000 people, according to surveys. Some are professionals who moved here for jobs. Others are resettled refugees from war-torn areas. The newer population represented an untapped market. Sin saw an opportunity at his grocery store. We have other cultures that come to our store just to buy, like, produce and things. They're like, hey, you should start carrying this. Like, maybe I should. (laughs) Sin revamped the store. Now, one section is entirely dedicated to African food, like yam and cassava flour. And Chong's Market is now the go-to for African ingredients in Colombia, with some customers trekking in from miles away. Sin says his parents would never have thought to overhaul their market like this. But Sin studied culinary arts and thought he could make it work. So he scouted out products that customers mentioned, googled African staple foods, and watched cooking videos. First generation, they come here and they're just here to to make it work, you know. And uh, as second generation, we always think about different things like, hey, how can we make this better? How can we do things differently? William Kwakuwinto is from Ghana and now works as an agricultural scientist. 
He's a regular Chong's customer. So I'm going to have a great meal this evening. He heaves a basket laden with plantains, yam, and palm oil, and tins of sardines, the Titus brand from Morocco, rare finds in Colombia. Nto likes Colombia, but adds that if he couldn't find what he likes to eat, well, that'd be a deal breaker. Yeah, I'm so much used to the stuff that uh, I used to enjoy back in Ghana. If I don't find those things, no, wherever I'm living, I'll find it very, very uncomfortable to continue to live there. Chong's market has become a regular part of the growing African community. On Sunday nights, Violet and Daisenga sings at church. She stands with the choir in a shiny orange outfit she made herself. Her sister sits in front, playing the drum. This church is where the town's refugees from East Africa gathered to pray in their native languages. Five years ago, Ndaisenga and her family were resettled in Columbia, Missouri, from a refugee camp in Tanzania. When we come to America, God say, go to Columbia, you will live there. So God chose us in Columbia. Say, Columbia will be your home. Back home after church, Ndaisenga puts a pot of water to boil on the stove for dinner. One of the family's favorite dishes is fufu made from rice powder. When the water boils, we have to put fufu. It looks like mashed potatoes. Ndaisenga serves it with fish and tomato sauce. Yeah, I think this is ready. The fufu comes in 50-pound bags from Chong's Oriental Market. Back at the market, Chong's owner, Taewoon Sin, practices cross-cultural communication on a small scale. His father taught him good manners in Korean. Sin says it turns out those actions translate into other cultures. Even our African customers, when I always hand him the receipt or the change or card, I always hand him with two hands or with my uh, right hand under my left hand, and they see that, hey, you do that too. So they're like saying, oh, yeah, you're very well-mannered. Sin wants to make the store even more international. Indian food is next. The only problem, finding enough space on the shelf. For The World, I'm Anna Boyko-Wyrock in Columbia, Missouri. Maybe they could make room for Cubanos. A Cubano is Cuba's classic take on the lowly ham sandwich. You can probably get a Cubano in most cities here in the United States. If, though, you happen to be looking for the best one outside Cuba, head straight to where our favorite foodie Steve Dolinsky is right now. Where are you sampling the goods, Steve? I'm in Little Havana, just west of Miami, for one of the best Cuban sandwiches in the country. Now, what makes the Cuban sandwiches in Miami, aside for the Cuban population, so good? Well, the Cuban sandwiches were really born 100 years ago as Cuban expats came back and forth between Florida and Cuba. It was very easy to get back and forth. And they say they were really born in Tampa, an Ybor City section of Tampa. But, of course, after the revolution in 59 and the 60s and 70s, this wave of immigration came to Miami and the sandwich came with it. And Cubans love pork. And so the the key to any sandwich is you've got to have roast pork. You've also got to have lightly smoked ham. But then you've got to have this great Cuban bread. And I've had Cuban sandwiches all over the country, but I've never had them like here in Miami where they have this perfectly baked white bread. But then the outside is slightly crispy. And, of course, it gets crispy from being pressed in a big, gigantic panini press. And that pork is being pressed inside with Swiss cheese, yellow mustard, a little bit of mayo, and really tart pickles. And when they press it at the end, they'll brush it with a little bit more melted butter <laughs> just to give it a little extra flavor on the outside layer. Why not? Uh, I guess this is a pretty common lunch food, this sandwich, for workers who were in the uh, sugar mills and the cigar factories in Cuba. I guess that would be without the panini press. Where else does the history take you there? Well, all those sugar and those tobacco workers were coming to Tampa first, and then they brought their sandwich culture with them 
And the funny thing about Miami, I've, I've found these two predominant sandwiches. In, in Miami Beach, where there's a large Jewish population, even in North Miami, the pastrami sandwich, a corned beef sandwich, those are king. And then down here in Little Havana and kind of the west side of Miami, it's all Cubano. And then I've also found one Jubano, which is a, a Cuban sandwich made with pastrami. <laughs> and hold the mayo. Of course. <laughs> and you uh, you are a man to do your own research, Steve. You have been hard at work trying to find the best Cubano in Miami. How many places did you hit up today? Lisa, I only had time for five places. <laughs> I know that seems like I'm slacking a bit. Indeed. But, uh, <laughs> but I hit five places. I've been trying the coffees, the Ropa Vieja, which is another typical Cuban dish, uh, shredded beef. But the Cuban sandwiches, everybody claims to have the best one. It's sort of like hitting Philly cheesesteak in Philly or pizza in Chicago. And the best that I've found is this El Palacio de los Jugos, which translates to the Juice Palace. They've got about 15 types of tropical juice here, but they've also got about 15 types of sandwiches. The number one sandwich, a $5 investment, is the Cubano here. It's toasted properly. The pork and the ham are all top-notch. The Swiss cheese is great. It's just got this perfect amalgam of sort of beefy richness and then also that tart bite from that mustard and pickle. Mm, And what are you going to wash it down with? Probably a Cuban coffee. They love their sweets down here. So the, the Cuban coffee, that's a short coffee, is an espresso made with Bustelo ground coffee and a little bit of sugar, sort of sugar syrup mixed into it. I would have that or a cortado, a cortadito, which is basically a latte. Well, bottoms up, Steve Delinsky, food reporter for ABC Television in Chicago, who has searched out what he says is the best Cubano sandwich in all of Little Havana, Miami. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Lisa. Okay, so you heard Steve Delinsky's recommendations. We want to know if you've got a taste for him, where you get your favorite Cubano. Tell us about it at theworld.org. You're listening to The World on PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, the American man who became a household name in Africa. My life has been exactly like an old African proverb. Proverb is, when door open... Go in. And we remember the creator of Super Marionation. Anything can happen in the next half hour. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Today, Russian President Vladimir Putin said that he sees no reason why he should not sign a bill that would ban Americans from adopting Russian children. The legislation is seen as a symbolic slap at the U.S. There's a story behind it, though. It's called the Yakovlev Bill, and it's named after a Russian toddler named Dmitry Yakovlev. He was adopted by a couple in Virginia. Four years ago, his adopted father left him in a scorching hot car for nine hours. The boy died. His case provoked outrage in Russia, and so did the judge's ruling that the death was accidental. Terence Ney of the Fairfax County Circuit Court was the judge in this case. Judge Ney, a lot of people who are hearing about this for the first time now are going to wonder why you did not find the father in this case, a man named Miles Harrison, guilty. Why did you acquit him? Well, it's really because of the application of Virginia law. Mr. Harrison was plainly negligent, and I so found. But in Virginia, in order to be guilty of, in this case, involuntary manslaughter, that has to be 
gross negligence, namely negligence of such a degree that you really should have known what you had done in order to cause, in this case, the death of the child. In short, the requisite intent, which is the key to any finding of guilt in any criminal case, is simply missing. We should say that, let me just mention that in terms of requisite intent, Mr. Harrison apparently thought that he had dropped off his son at daycare, so then he went to work, the son was still in the car, right? He he absolutely did, and there's so many ironies in this particular case, but these parents worked so hard to obtain this child, they spent over $85,000, they made three trips to Russia. When they brought him back here from the orphanage, they got his health good. He was, you know, somewhat malnourished when he was in the orphanage and needed some attention. A beautiful, beautiful child. They spent a lot of time consulting with people to find the perfect daycare facility for him. And I I can't recall now, I haven't looked at this file, it's been over four years, but for the most part, it was Ms. Harrison who was dropping the child off. But Mr. Harrison's mind was elsewhere. He absolutely believed he had dropped the child off. And when it was discovered later in the afternoon that he had not, well, he was devastated. He was he was suicidal. He he really was very, not in a great deal, much better emotional shape at the time of the trial. The little boy, Dmitry Yakovlev, his name is now part of this bill, the Yakovlev bill, the one that's being considered now by Vladimir Putin. Uh, the, the bill doesn't name you in particular, uh, Judge, but it does refer to you because, as we said, it's named after the boy and it also calls for penalties for judges and others who violate the rights of adopted Russian children. That's at least the way they look at it, as if this was a violation. Uh, I understand that if the bill passes, it could affect you directly. What would it mean for you? All I really know about it, I learned from the New York Times reporter who called me last week, as well as the individuals from the Russian television and radio network who interviewed me last week as well, that there's some reference made to me. I don't know whether it's by name or otherwise. I have not seen the bill, of course, but that I would not be permitted to visit Russia. Um, Ironically, my wife and I have been talking for years about visiting Russia. We very much would like to go to St. Petersburg and to Moscow and to see St. Basil's and Lenin's tomb and perhaps even take the Trans-Siberian Railway to Vladivostok. And that's obviously not going to be permitted if President Putin signs this law. So on a personal level, well, of course, it's a disappointment. But that's really not what's important. What's really important here, to my mind, is how unfortunate it will be to have the country whose citizens adopt the most children from Russia, namely the United States, be prohibited from doing so, because notwithstanding a horribly tragic situation such as is presented here, many, many of these children have been adopted, thousands and thousands and thousands, and have done very, very well. And to me, that's that's the tragedy of this, or the great unfortunate circumstances of this legislation. I wonder if that's uh, the reason, because you wanted to get that message across, that uh, you granted, well, that you're granting this interview, for one thing, because you normally don't give interviews, but also that you spoke with Russian state TV last week. That's exactly correct. I never give interviews, but I just thought that if I had the opportunity to express to the Russian people two facts. First, this child could have been born in Fairfax, Virginia, as opposed to Russia. It would have made no difference in the outcome of the case. Secondly, again, and more importantly, is that the opportunity for these children from orphanages in Russia or anywhere to find homes, find parents who will take them in, 
it's such a wonderful opportunity for any child, and I'm sorry that as a result of this legislation, this may not be permissible anymore with regard to uh, Russian children being adopted by parents who live in the United States. Judge Terrence Ney of Fairfax County Circuit Court in Virginia, speaking to us from his chambers in Fairfax, Virginia. Thank you. Thank you. Just on the chance you're thinking about a hunting trip to Costa Rica, think again. This month, legislators there passed a bill to ban all sport hunting in that Central American country. It's believed to be the first time any nation in the Americas has taken such a strong step against hunting. It's a little surprise that Costa Rica would be the first to do so. The country is known for protecting its environment and profiting from it through ecotourism. Still, even in the greenest of countries, the hunting ban faces obstacles. Reporter Ari Daniel Shapiro of our partner program NOVA has the story. Costa Rica doesn't have a lot of hunters. Still, talk to some environmentalists, and they'll tell you that in certain parts of the country, hunting has caused problems. Take Tapanti National Park, a patch of tropical rainforest in the heart of Costa Rica, where it's pretty much always raining. Leonel Delgado Pereira is a park ranger here. In the town here, Purisil, is a town close to the national park has many, many hunters here. And these hunters outside the park have caused trouble inside. He says sometimes they sneak into Tapanti to kill animals even though it's illegal. Other times they hunt with their dogs along the border of the park. But occasionally the dogs escape and can end up killing additional animals or getting killed themselves. In fact, Delgado Pereira says that recently a group of hunters blamed the disappearance of their dogs on a rare black jaguar. And so... Some guy killed a black jaguar. These types of activities, says Delgado Pereira, have caused a noticeable decline of animals within this park and other protected areas, too. Now, in the last few decades, Costa Rica has enacted a series of laws to safeguard its environment. For instance, the country's locked up nearly a quarter of its land for conservation purposes. And inside these protected areas, for the last 40 years, sport hunting and trapping have been banned. But throughout the rest of the country, those activities have been permitted under the country's wildlife protection law, which passed in 1992. A number of environmental groups have been frustrated with the law. Gino Biamonte is president of the Association for the Preservation of Flora and Fauna. His group and others lobbied the Costa Rican legislature to ban hunting. It's completely anti-democratic to allow an activity that goes against the good of the most of the population, against the very few that see a benefit on the hunting Biamonte says changing the law just wasn't a priority for the legislature, and for years nothing happened. So he and his colleagues went to the public. They took advantage of a new popular initiative process in Costa Rica. His group and its partner organizations got 177,000 signatures in support of a new wildlife management law. It bans sport hunting and trapping across the entire country, both inside and outside the national parks. That bill went before Costa Rica's Legislative Assembly, where it passed unanimously. Needless to say, hunters aren't happy. All these are the papers associated with the case. Ricardo Guardia is the president of the Costa Rican Hunters Association. He's also a lawyer, and he plans to fight the hunting ban. I will contest it in the Constitutional Court, and I hope I will win too. He says the Congress didn't follow proper procedures in passing the law, and he argues hunting is a reasonable use of natural resources that doesn't harm the general public. 
Now, the new law does allow hunting in two special circumstances, subsistence hunting by indigenous groups and calls to control overpopulation. But Guardia says that with virtually no legal hunting, the new law will lead to a poaching free-for-all and wildlife numbers will plummet in protected areas. People will not respect it. I mean, why would people poach outside the national park if there's more game inside the national park? In an email, Costa Rica's Minister of the Environment stated that the government intends to redouble its efforts to keep poachers out of national parks when the hunting ban takes effect. But given the country's limited resources, some say enforcement will be a challenge. Alonso Villalobos is a political scientist at the University of Costa Rica. He says even if the hunting ban isn't implemented perfectly, the law is symbolically important to a country that's formed its identity around conservation. The Costa Rican, they think themselves uh, like uh, people who are in a very good relation with the environment. And in that way, we have made a lot of progress. We have a a stronger uh, environmental consciousness. Costa Rica's president is expected to sign the new law soon, and the hunting ban should go into effect early next year. However, it'll take another 12 months for all currently valid hunting licenses to expire. For Nova and the World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro, San Jose, Costa Rica. We have a link to Nova's Planet Earth website at theworld.org. We're looking for a little slice of England for today's GeoQuiz. It's a perfect country scene. On a green near a church, there's a distinctively English game taking place. It's cricket. And if they're not playing cricket, the locals continue the English tradition of dancing around the maypole. This is not England, though. This cricket match is being played under the hot Caribbean sun. And while many of the locals have Anglo names, Spanish is the language you hear most often. The nearby fields are filled with sugarcane, not the wheat of old England. And the government is run by communists, not by the British Parliament. You got it yet? Because the answer is here, now. Cuba. Who knew that some in Cuba identify themselves first and foremost as British West Indians? The BBC's Sarah Rainsford went to Baragua in central Cuba to meet some of them. Deep in the countryside of communist Cuba, there is a small and unusual community. These are British West Indians, and they're struggling to keep old traditions alive. Their families founded St James's Church here almost a century ago. It stands in the shadow of the sugar mill that first lured them to the island. In those days, the mill was run by Americans. My name is Albert Springer Howard. My parents from Barbados. They know that there was work here and they came to earn money so as to return back to their country. But after seeing the situation was so good, They remain, and they made families here. Back then, English was the language of the streets here, but that's fading. The community's English school was closed after Cuba's revolution, and even the church service is in Spanish now. There's just a handful of people in the pews. It looked very hard. The future is not looking too well. This church used to be full, especially in festivities days, just as the Christmas. But now it's decaying. 
but the younger generation is passionate about some traditions here. I've just walked onto a very overgrown playing field with a couple of rusty goalposts next to a field full of sugarcane. I'm right in the middle of Cuba, but in front of me there's a distinctly English scene. There are men in bright white trousers and caps playing cricket. Their grandparents introduced the game to Cuba, but it takes dedication to keep it going now. There's no state funding because the government doesn't recognise cricket as an official sport. Oi, el bate. The lad batting has just smacked the ball and cracked his bat into two pieces. It's pretty much good for nothing now. It's difficult to get the, the board to make the, the, the bat. The wood, them. yeah? Yes, the wood to make the bat. Them. So we can try and see what we can do. There is just one survivor in this town now from the original wave of English-speaking migrants. Where are you from? Where, where were you born? Jamaica. Ruby Ellis, a small woman with a big, crinkly smile. Like everyone, she came looking for a better life here. Today, like most Cubans, the West Indians now rely on financial support sent by relatives abroad. And most, like Ruby's son Francisco, can't even afford to visit them. I would like to visit Jamaica because that's my mother's my mother, uh, land. But I never had that opportunity. Never. I would like to go to Jamaica and Barbados. In the meantime, Francisco's keeping a flavour of his mother's homeland alive here in Cuba. He's part of a maypole dancing group. They practice near the mill, the women flinging their skirts as they thread bright-coloured ribbons around the pole, and the men performing acrobatics to the beat of the drums. Almost a century on, it seems some customs are very resilient. For The World, this is Sarah Rainsford, Baragua, Central Cuba. Coming up, a man who connected the African continent through its music on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI. Today's story, reported in conjunction with NOVA, was made possible by the Candida Fund. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. British TV producer Jerry Anderson was the creator of popular kids' shows in the 1960s. He died this week at the age of 83. Anderson's show Thunderbirds became a cult classic in the U.K. and here in the U.S., but he made many more shows, and the world's Alex Galifant remembers them fondly. Stand by for action! You're a kid, maybe seven years old. You're avoiding your homework when this comes on the TV. Exciting, isn't it? This was Jerry Anderson's first big hit, a show about heroes and villains battling underwater in high-tech submersibles. It was 1964, and it wasn't a cartoon. The characters were puppets. Jerry Anderson called the style Super Mario Nation. Along with his wife and collaborator Sylvia, he followed it up with the big one, Thunderbirds. 
Thunderbirds eventually made it to the U.S. We kind of remembered it, but not really. That's Trey Parker talking to a Welsh radio station in 2004. He and his South Park collaborator Matt Stone were promoting their new movie, Team America: World Police, a foul-mouthed satire made with puppets much like Jerry Anderson's. In fact, Thunderbirds gave them the idea, but they didn't like how much time the puppets spent talking and just standing around. At first, we were kind of like ripping on Jerry Anderson because we're like, "Man, this guy had such cool stuff. It looks so cool, but it's so boring. All you know, the scripts are so bad." And then, as we started shooting it ourselves, we're like, "Oh, this is why he has everyone standing around talking <laughs> all the time because <laughs> trying to get a puppet to do anything is nearly impossible." Gary Anderson created two more puppet series: Captain Scarlet and the Misterons, and my own favorite, Joe Ninety, about a schoolboy turned spy. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant. You can watch some classic Thunderbirds, including Operation Crash Drive, at theworld.org. Now you'd be hard pressed to find anyone who squeezed more into his 91 years than the man you're about to meet. He's known for assembling the music for the movie *The African Queen*, but this Armenian-American from Massachusetts is a legendary figure in Africa. Richard Harris has the story. You probably don't know his name, but people throughout Africa do. In fact, Leo Sarkeesian was so famous on the continent, still is, that kings and presidents sought him out, often gave him a police escort. Sarkeesian just retired after a half century with the Voice of America. As the founder and producer of VOA's longest-running English-language program, it's music time in Africa. With me here in our studios on Independence Avenue in Washington D.C. is my colleague, the VOA music man, Leo Sarkeesian. Thank you, Rita. Good evening, friend. Glad to have you with us. I hope you'll stay tuned and ready to sit back and relax. And enjoy the music we have for you. It's not his 47 years on the air that Sarkeesian's real feat. It's how he recorded and amassed a collection of traditional music from remote corners of Africa. It's a skill he developed as a recording engineer in the 1950s for Colonel Fogel at Tempo Records in Hollywood. My life has been exactly like an old African proverb. And the proverb is. When door open, go in. When Colonel Fogel knocked on my door in New York and offered me to work with him, yes, it was a door and it was open for me, and I walked in. First stop, Pakistan, where Sarkeesian and his wife began their lifelong adventure. Driving a jeep loaded with the finest recording equipment, they crossed the Khyber Pass into 1950s Afghanistan, in the ancient city of Herat. Sarkeesian captured what he says is the rarest of recordings: a man in his 90s who had been the court singer for the Emir of Afghanistan, who ruled the country until 1919. <laughs> That is probably the most valuable recording I've ever made, so it gives me goose pimples. <laughs> By 1961, President John F. Kennedy named famed broadcast journalist Edward R. Murrow to head up the U.S. Information Agency. Murrow's first overseas trip was to Guinea, where Sarkeesian was then based. Murrow, who'd heard about Sarkeesian, walked up six flights to his apartment 
knocked on the door, and offered him a job on the spot. He said, we have in mind to build the biggest radio station in Africa, and it'll probably be in Liberia, in Monrovia, and I'd like to have you come and join the Voice of America. So in 1965, Sarkeesian launched Music Time in Africa on the VOA from Liberia. The idea? Music would prompt people in Africa to listen to the VOA for news. What we were doing was cross-reporting not only our news broadcasts of information, but we were also cross-reporting their own cultures and music of their own people. People in East Africa had never heard Liberian music. They had never heard the music of the Ivory Coast. And people in West Africa had never really heard music of their brothers who were living out in East Africa or Southern Africa. When I first listened to Leo Sarkeesian, I was like, wow, I mean, who is this? Uh, I mean, he's kind of love African music. Jeff Tarnu, a Liberian radio reporter and producer, has been listening to Music Time in Africa for nearly 20 years. When I listened to some of those traditional sounds that he discovered over the years, uh, I kind of get spellbound because... Those are things that we Africans should be looking for ourselves. Sarkeesian had a knack for tracking down hard-to-find African music. In the process, he became a goodwill ambassador, carrying his sketchbook, drawing portraits of African leaders or locals. He's been recognized by ethnomusicologists as one of them, even though his only higher education was art school and the VOA formally named his rare collection of music the Leo Sarkeesian Library of African Music. This is my library here. I'll take you in, and uh, you'll be able to see the, all the tapes that I have accumulated over so many years. There are floor-to-ceiling shelves against each wall, packed with boxes and boxes of reel-to-reel tapes labeled by the African country where Sarkeesian recorded the music, It's all being digitized by the University of Michigan. Now I have about 10,000 reels of tapes in this room, in this library. This is my home. It's been my home for so many years, and all the years I've been here at The Voice of America. I I still can't get over it up till today. (laughs) At the end of my life, I says, my gosh, what we did. For the world, I'm Richard Harris. You can see photos of Leo Sarkeesian and some of his artwork there at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.